0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Successful entrepreneurs have to be optimistic in order to succeed where others probably have failed, and that may make them more prone to hide mental health struggles like depression. Two prominent players in Boulder's tech scene who have been diagnosed with depression themselves are trying to change that. Brad Felt co founded the venture firm The Foundry Group, which is based in Boulder, and Jerry Colonna is co founder and CEO at Reboot and Executive coaching company, also based in Boulder. And Brad, Jerry, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Andrea. It's good to be here.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: There have been a flurry of articles by and about entrepreneurs dealing with mental health issues and a few high-profile suicides as well. CNN did a documentary recently on mental health in this community featuring the CEO of a Seattle-based company called Moz.
3: I think as a CEO, you are asked by your investors, by your employees, by your friends and family to have this undefeatable nature that you are on top of the world. And the reality, of course, is completely different.
0: That's Rand Fishkin, and we'll talk more about the reasons for depression. But Brad, give me a sense of the scope of this. Uh, how common is depression in the entrepreneurial community?
2: Uh, I think it's much more uh, prevalent than anyone up to this point has been willing to acknowledge. Um, I think there's also, it's important to recognize that there's a very broad spectrum. So the idea of depression isn't an absolute, you know, sort of canonical thing. Um, Most entrepreneurs struggle at various points in time under a whole variety of different stressors um, that in a lot of cases can lead to depression but in other cases can amplify um, other kinds of anxieties, um, some that are linked to depression, some that are not. Uh, And in my own experience over the last uh, 30 years as an entrepreneur and investor, I think the vast majority of entrepreneurs that I've interacted with have struggled on this spectrum somewhere.
0: You could say that many professions face high stress. Doctors, for example, and according to the CDC, one in four people suffer from some kind of mental illness. Why is it important to focus on this issue through the lens of the startup community?
1: I think that... um there's this concomitant um lionization of entrepreneurs that exacerbates the problem i think it's an important point that uh, the point you've just made is incredibly important that there's there, that there isn't necessarily something unique um going on uh in one profession uh versus another i mean for example first responders uh, the the level of stress and stress related um illnesses that, that um, occur for first responders is extraordinary. But I think that there's this... Um, we tend not to put first responders or lawyers uh, on the covers of magazines and hold them up as this sort of ideal. Um, and, and in doing so, we exacerbate the tendency to hide the symptoms and hide the shame and, and out of shame, hide the reality of the things that they're struggling with.
0: Brad, what are your I, thoughts on this? Yeah,
1: I'd add to it that the stigma
2: is, is profound and, you know, we've been living under the guise of a certain archetype of a leader and, you know, what a leader needs to be like uh, and that uh, does not include uh, the ability to be depressed or to, to struggle with different kinds of anxiety disorders um and as part of that there's really no func or up to this point there hasn't been a functional support system partly because um the stigma is so high that entrepreneurs simply won't acknowledge to themselves that they're struggling with these issues which uh, i think as as Jerry, in, in his work can easily say often contributes to the issue even more it compounds it and so you end up in the situation where professionally as an entrepreneur in terms of the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis the cultural norms around uh one prevents this ability to acknowledge and to really explore uh, how you're doing as an individual because you have to live up to some artificial archetype that in many cases is just simply not achievable.
0: Would you say the macho culture is sort of part of this? I don't think it's just
2: macho. I think it's across this whole spectrum of uh, the idea of a strong leader. And, uh, you know, you can create a gender dynamic around it, but I think it applies uh, to both genders. And... Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, is very, very profound um, uh, in the introspection uh, of a leader against the backdrop of the different people that uh, she's working with. Hmm. So I, I don't like the idea of linking it to a macho culture, per se, because I think it's too limiting of what the phenomena is. It's much more around this idea that, you know, leaders have to be strong. They have to show no fear. They can't show failure. They can't expose themselves. They have to always wear their armor to whatever they're doing and always show up as their best self. And, you know, that's just not how how life works.
0: Can you give me an example, Brad, of a time during your business life that you fell into depression?
2: Yeah, I've had a a handful of uh, extended depressive episodes uh, that I would uh, count, you know, at least three months Um, The most recent one was uh, at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. uh, I had a six-month depressive episode. And if you looked at it from the outside uh, and said, how's that guy doing? Uh, Your response would be, "Eh, it seems like everything's going great. You know, his work is going well. He's got a great marriage. He's healthy. uh, He's a long-distance runner. You know, he's got lots of friends. Um, But if you sort of dug below the surface as to what actually happened, there were a bunch of physiological things Um, that led up to uh, the depressive episode but weren't the only driver of it because there was an awful lot of contextual stuff, mostly about me being able to understand what, you know, my late 40s was important to me and how I was comporting myself and how I was effectively interacting with my work. Mm.
0: Uh, Jerry, how about you? Uh, An instance during your business life when you fell into a depression?
1: Well, probably you know, I, I, I continue to struggle with it, and there are days that are good days and days that are bad days. Today, um, the good news is that most days are good, and when the days are bad, I know how to take care of myself, and that's a really important uh, lesson. The most profound uh, time period was about 14 years ago when I was working actually as an investor at J.P. Morgan in New York, and uh really had a confluence of events occur. It was shortly after nine eleven 11 That had a profound impact on me. It scared me deeply. Um, but also kind of midlife came crawling up. I was 38. And as Brad was describing in his own experience, outwardly everything seemed to be fine. Uh, it was just inwardly I felt empty and hollow. And I could hear... Uh, uh, the constant criticism internally of just the ways in which I was failing in life. Nobody else could hear it, of course. Um, And that led to uh, a profound feeling of uh, suicidal impulses, which, thankfully, I did not give into.
0: There's this view that entrepreneurs seek out risk and excitement in a manic environment, do you think people prone to depression, including bipolar depression, tend to be drawn to the startup world, or is it that the world breeds depression? In other words, is it cause or effect? Uh, Brad? I don't
2: I don't really know. Um, I've tried to parse it a little bit from uh, my standing. And my experience after I was very public about my depression uh, in uh, 2013 was that I had a very large number, you know well over a hundred entrepreneurs reach out to me, many of them names that would be recognizable um not just to people in Colorado but people all around the world um and in in many cases uh that I was one of the first or the first person that any of them had ever talked to about their own struggles and when I look at some of those people there and, and think about their personality, some I knew reasonably well, some I didn't at all um they were Pretty diverse. I mean, you had you had extroverts and you had introverts. You had people that were incredibly visible and and front-facing leaders, and then you had other people who were very much servant leaders and uh, very effective at at you know building teams but staying out of the spotlight. Um, you had people whose personalities looked like very risk-taking personalities, and then you had other people who uh, were much more. Um, i wouldn 't say less risk taking but uh, less less visible in terms of uh, how they how they engage so you know when i say i don 't know my my instinct is it 's not either or maybe it 's both right it's not it 's not easily separable um, and more importantly when you think about the different things that people struggle with and I think this is one of the challenges of of labels um, you know calling it mental health or calling it depression or calling it bipolar what what, what is it i mean you know, is it is it Which anxiety disorder is it and what are the triggers of that? And uh, those triggers in the context that the person creates are self-referential to some degree because most entrepreneurs are creating the cultural norms of their own companies. So they're either positively or negatively reinforcing their own Mm -hmm. uh, struggles and stressors.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with two Boulder entrepreneurs. Both have dealt with depression, and both are trying to get the startup community to be more open about mental health. Brad Feld co-founded the Boulder-based venture firm, The Foundry Group. Jerry Colonna is co-founder and CEO at Reboot, an executive coaching company based in Boulder. And Jerry, at what point did you say to yourself, I need to talk about this publicly?
1: Um. Probably. So, so after the depression uh, really sidelined me for several years, I began slowly talking about it, writing about it on a blog, and then realized that uh, I needed to do more of that. And, and my inspiration for that was actually um, a, a writer, a Quaker teacher named Parker Palmer, who wrote openly about his struggles with depression in a beautiful little book called Let Your Life Speak. And the experience of reading about his struggles with depression inspired me to realize that one of the ways I could help and one of the ways I could pay back all the people who have helped me over the years was to sort of take my seat as an elder and be open about it. Hmm. Um, You know, to to Brad's point, I don't know for sure what cause or, or what effect is going on here. But I do know that shame compounds the problem, and that's something that, as elders in the community, we can do something about. We can make it okay to seek help, and that's the most important thing.
0: Hmm. In the CNN documentary, Moz founder Rand Fishkin said something I found really interesting about the culture around startups.
4: It's almost like a badge of
3: honor to show how busy you are. Sleep is not cool. Pregnancy not cool. All these things that normal human beings do and need. People need families. They need to go to sleep at night. But somehow that is excluded from the acceptable portion of the culture.
0: Colorado seems like a place where people value time out of the office to recreate and be with family and friends. Fishkin is on the West Coast. But I wonder, um, Brad, do you see this pressure in Colorado as well? And what does it look like?
2: So Rand's in Seattle. So I'd, I'd be more precise about where uh, he's based because I think one of the challenges about mm-hmm. geography is they get these generalizations like West Coast or East Coast, whereas the, the cities themselves uh, matter. And I know Rand well, as does Jerry. Um, we're investors in uh, in Rand's company. And and uh, Amy and I, my wife Amy and I, are good friends with Rand and his wife, Geraldine. And I, I think that the thing that Rand is describing is something that Uh, I'm working hard to try to exterminate uh, across the startup community landscape uh, around the world. Um, The idea that somehow, as an entrepreneur, there's a set of things that normal human beings do that you can't treasure and value and that you can't incorporate into your life as nonsense. Um, Being an entrepreneur is intense, requires incredible focus, um, and like many other things that people do in their lives, require choices, um, but, at the same time, this uh, to whether it 's shame or stigma or denial of what you are fundamentally feeling and what you want to spend your time on um, will actually make you less successful as an entrepreneur versus embracing the things that are important to you and incorporating them into your life.
0: And Brad, one reason people in any workplace fear bringing up mental health is the worry that folks will see them differently and perhaps wonder if they're up to the job uh, while being depressed. And in fact, one symptom of depression can be lack of motivation. Did anyone treat you differently when you went public with your depression?
2: Well, I've, I've had three different uh, phases where I've I've had to think about this particular thing and I'm going to start – I'm going to go back to my 20s when I had my first depressive episode, which lasted for about two years when I was CEO of my first company. Um, and the only people at the time that knew that I was depressed were my partner, Dave, uh, and my at the time girlfriend, now wife, Amy. Um, and uh, the challenge there for me in my 20s was I was unbelievably ashamed of the idea that I was depressed. I was CEO of this company. Uh, I was a successful founder, I was working 100 hours a week, Uh, I was incredibly functional, but it required 100% of my energy just to get through the day. Uh, And it took uh, when I got home at the end of the day, and and my days while I was struggling with depression were, you know, probably 10 hour days instead of 14 or 16 hour days. Um, But this idea that I couldn't talk to anybody, share it with anybody, expose it to anybody was profound. When, when, I run the clock forward to the episode that I had in 2013. Um, You know, one of the most powerful things was I was able to talk immediately to my partners at at Foundry and many of the CEOs that I worked with uh, and be open about what I was struggling with. And I wasn't looking for them to change their behavior or their interaction with me, but to actually just understand what some of the things that I needed for myself in that moment were so that when I throttled back or when I took Saturdays off completely and didn't check email and didn't talk on the phone and just disconnected for a digital Sabbath, um, or when I wasn't interested in going out to board dinners and drinking and staying out late uh, and participating in the socialization around it, that they would understand that I was preserving my energy so I could be functional um, in the actual work that I needed to do rather than interacting across all those things. And what I found was incredibly supportive and um, helpful community around me, of my peers, of the companies I've invested in, of other investors, of people who were just um, afraid themselves, had the same stigma, had the same shame I had in my early 20s, um, not just with their own struggles, but with their understanding of how to interact with someone like me who was struggling during this period of time. So I, I think ultimately, the more we talk about it, the more we eliminate the stigma Um, the less fearful people will be. But it's important to acknowledge that that fear is real and that fear contributes to, you know, how somebody is dealing with and interacting with however they're feeling at that point in time.
0: We have to wrap up now, but uh, Brad, Jerry, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Brad Feld is the founder of Boulder-based venture firm, The Foundry Group. Jerry Colonna is co-founder and CEO at Reboot, an executive coaching company based in Boulder. Both have spoken and written about their own depression and why entrepreneurs are vulnerable. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You may not know the name Kyle James Hauser, but there's a chance you've already heard his music. It's featured in the acclaimed new film The Big Sick, which opens tonight in Denver. The movie was a breakout entry at this year's Sundance Film Festival and was produced by comedy hitmaker Judd Apatow. Hauser has released two albums under his own name. He's toured as a member of the Colorado bluegrass band Rapid Grass, and he currently works for a Fort Collins group that helps Colorado artists with music music licensing. Here's one of his songs featured in The Big Sick. It's called So Long.
5: It's too long.
0: Kyle James Hauser joins us now. And, Kyle, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: For those who haven't seen The Big Sick yet, it's a comedy about an interracial couple, a Pakistani man and a white woman, and the backlash they face from their respective families. And it features two songs that you originally released a few years ago. How did your music make its way into this film?
3: Well, that's kind of the, the big question, isn't it? Um... So I've been uh working in film for a few years now. Um I think I haven't I haven't done a count recently, but this is maybe my 7th or 8th uh feature. This is far and away the, the biggest, but I think um as you could probably imagine uh, uh like many uh, uh fields in the creative arts, it's once you've been around for a while, things start to kind of you know, in some ways gain, gain momentum. And so, uh, this was just, um, kind of, kind of a a fortunate, a, a crossroads of opportunity and preparation, you might say, which is something that I really firmly believe in. Um, the music supervisor for this film, uh, he reached out to my label, um, as happens once in a while, looking for some tunes for a project that we didn't, Know what it was, and then you know we were thrilled to find out that it was it was this film and uh, i i didn 't know that I had my music in it until it was about to premiere at Sundance, so mm-hmm. I found out you know it was all basically said and done
0: so have you seen the movie i haven 't heard your music
3: in it. <laughs> 't that funny i mean that's uh, that's one of the things too about working in this industry is um you know, I'm so uh so honored to be a collabor collaborator on the on the film, but um really not not super in the loop. Uh now that doesn't mean I couldn't have gone to see it, but it would have meant buying a plane ticket to LA or New York to see it. And it's playing in theaters on the coasts. Um, yeah, coming here this week and then it's gonna be in what they call wide release July fourteenth. So then it'll be, you know, in every I think every theater there there is. <laughs>
0: Have you been in touch with the producers and do you have a sense of what they thought would make your music right for the film?
3: <laughs> you know, it's uh, that's a bit of a mystical art, right? Um, placing uh, previously released songs in films. So so as opposed to, uh, say, scoring or composing for a, a film, um, and, and it really is something it's – a, it's a field that I have a, a lot of respect for. Music supervisors have this kind of magical position of communicating with the team, the directors, the writers, and then finding music that sort of captures that feeling or emotion. Sometimes it's you know music that is very uh, well-known. Like they might say, like, we want a Beatles tune here. And then sometimes they might come back and say, well, you, you can't afford a Beatles tune. But I found these five artists – that have a similar vibe, a similar flavor. So in this case, I'm not actually certain how that dialogue went um, because a lot of those conversations happen internally with the team. And, you know, you kind of just hope and pray uh, when a music supervisor asks for some of your tunes that that they're going to use them.
0: Are you worried about the content and how you're going to feel about it once you see the movie? You
3: know, so uh, I have uh, the the president of my label has seen it, uh, and another film producer friend of mine um, who I worked with a, with on a movie called um, Where Hope Grows a few years ago. They both saw it in L. A. They said it's great little piece. It's uh, they play so long. Uh, in a scene where Holly Hunter and uh, Kumail are having an emotional chat and then they said um, my name's in the credits. So I think sometimes it's it's, it's a fair question because there have been projects that um, I've kind of said, yeah, you can you can use my music. And then I kind of wonder, like. How are they going to use it? Right. Because I'm not there in the cutting room or the editing room. Um, but with a film like this, you know, I'm a big fan of all of the people involved all the way up to the director, Michael Showalter, who did Wet Hot American Summer, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite movies growing up. Um, so I just even before the, the reviews came in, I was just so, you know, thrilled and confident it was going to be a good project.
0: And you're a big fan of Judd Apatow.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think we all are at this point, right? <laughs> he's, he's made at least one movie that everybody likes, you know?
0: <laughs> and um, as we mentioned, the movie was at the Sundance Film Festival, getting good reviews and good buzz. Um, what do you see this doing for your career?
3: Boy, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm trying to, uh, to use... Um, use it as a means to talk about some of the other things that I'm working on. And my, my career at this time, I've stepped off the road a little bit. I'm not touring and performing as much as I have. Uh, I spent, you know, the last 10 years basically touring full time or performing full time. And, um, so, you know, while it's again, such an honor to be on uh, and included in a film like that, um, i I'm, I'm looking at it really as an opportunity to kind of highlight some of the cool things that are happening in the Colorado music scene. And for me personally, just hoping that it um, leads to more opportunities writing for film, because that has really, when I look back over the last few years, been one of the, the biggest highlights and uh, something I want to continue doing for the rest of my career.
0: You also work for the music district in Fort Collins, and part of that job involves getting Colorado music on film soundtracks and in advertisements. What success have you had in getting more attention to Colorado music?
3: Yeah, uh, so the music district, we are... um a pretty wide-reaching organization, even though we are not quite uh, at our first year. Uh, so we actually have a campus that's a professional development center for musicians, but it's mm. it's free to the public so you can come and rehearse there, take lessons, uh, attend workshops. But we have a couple outreach programs, and that's where I come in right now. I'm running a couple programs. One is working with our uh, Colorado State Music Ambassador, which a lot of folks don't know exists mm-hmm. uh, because it's brand new. Um, uh, it was appoint, uh, he was appointed by Governor Hickenlooper earlier this year. His name is Sean King from the band Devotchka.
1: Oh, ah, we've interviewed year, them.
3: Yeah, um, and he's he's awesome. And last year we ran a pilot program with Sean. Uh, called the Colorado Music Licensing Project, where uh, exactly as you described. So our success, one of our flagship successes with there was getting a band called Trout Steak Revival, a local band, uh, a series of advertisements with the Bank of Colorado. So that was really great. And and from my perspective, um, Colorado businesses uh, and, and Colorado in general, we have a lot of pride in our state and the culture that surrounds it, beer, outdoors, music, all of these things. And so uh, it feels like kind of a, a, a no-brainer for local businesses to tap some of the great music made right here in our state for their advertising, for their promotion marketing campaigns. And the musicians here, um, it creates an alternative revenue stream that I think can be very supportive of our burgeoning, uh, hopefully widely growing middle class of musicians here. So that's that's one of them. And um, Uh, uh, The other program is one called Detour, where we uh, it's a touring program where we do really community engagement focused uh, touring around the state and usually to lesser uh, served areas. So we started that pilot program with Colorado Creative Industries in uh, 2015 with the Flowbots going into schools, to senior centers. uh, We went to the Ute Reservations and gave Performances. And what are
1: you
0: trying to impart to those communities? You know, the
3: cool thing about Detour is it's really uh, it's it's t- hand tailored to each artist that we work with. So right now, I've got one coming up. We're about to announce it this week with uh, local artist Wheelchair Sports Camp. Mm-hmm. And we are working with, uh, with Kaylin and Wheelchair Sports Camp, and we've and, also had
0: them on the show.
3: Yeah, yeah I'm sure, and they're um, terrific. And we're we're, we're going to be going into uh, state correctional facilities, mm-hmm. working with offenders, doing uh, uh, music uh, education, music empowerment, um, storytelling, and and that was really Kaylin's vision. She wanted to reach some of these um, underserved. Uh, uh communities and and show them how music can become a powerful form of self-expression and 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 create change. So detour shifts every time it's kind of the cool thing about it.
0: Well let's hear another song featured in the Big Sick. It's called Life, Love and Pain.
5: So let it out. Got to move on before you lose all you love. You have to start over. Get soaked all over
0: again. You're a graduate of the Berklee School of Music in Boston. This year you joined the school's faculty and you're teaching an online songwriting class. What drew you to teach uh, songwriting?
3: Well, so my degree is in songwriting and I think... Uh, just generally, I was always a really good student. I really enjoy the system of education, and um, I say a lot uh, when I'm when I'm talking to younger artists, musicians that really it's 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 all of my teachers that got me to this point and i, I feel like i still have teachers in many areas of my life and that's kind of how i approach uh, a new challenge is i try to find someone who's been there who 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 understands the circumstance more than i do and try and and learn from them so um it just felt like a natural piece, uh, uh, to, to be an educator myself. And I started doing that right after I graduated. Um, I, I remember printing flyers and putting them up at the local college, like 20 bucks an hour guitar lessons, you know, with the little tearaway tabs. Um, and all, all through the, the next decade, uh, education has been, uh, Uh, something that I really, really enjoy. I really love to teach. Um, But it's been hard to do touring so much, you know, being on the road, it's hard to have a a student body. So uh, when the opportunity at Berkeley came about, it felt like one, you know, really beautiful way to be able to stay mobile and still teach in a meaningful way. Um, And two, an opportunity to talk about songwriting and the the technique and the pedagogy around songwriting, which is really where my heart lies and songwriting is one of those funny things it's like any sort of like pure creative writing uh, it's very very subjective so at, at Berkeley we say uh, we have uh, tools not rules right it's uh-huh. it's, uh, it's a little uh, cliche, but it sticks with you. And the idea is that we can, we can, uh, examine songs. We can, we can take a massive body of work and we study everything from Sting to, to the Beatles and Bob Dylan and, you know, Kesha, you know, we look at what, what makes a song stick with somebody and, and what are the actual techniques. So, um, so that is just something I've always wanted to do.
0: And your last album came out in 2014, but you've continued making music since, including a collaboration with the Louisville Ballet in Kentucky. What's your next album going to be like?
3: Okay, so yeah, I am, I'm currently um, in the, the, the planning stages for that next record. It's going to be, uh, I'm going to record it here in Colorado sometime in the fall. Um, I've been talking with some collaborators across the state, some friends of mine, musicians who I might uh, like to include. But I think this one is going to focus a little more uh, inward and um, maybe be a little less orchestrated than my previous releases.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. Let's hear one more song and this one from your most recent album, You a Thousand Times. It's called Lonely's What I'm Leaving.
5: It's time to say- goodbye to this town and lonely is what I'm leaving for you it's only shown me all the things that I can't do and you might be the way and if you are my heart won't ever stay
0: Kyle James Hauser is a singer-songwriter and currently works for the Music District in Fort Collins. Two of his original songs appear in the new film The Big Sick, which opens tonight in Denver.
5: Now I'm on the road Things are becoming clear I'm so far from home I can't see it In the real view mirror Every mile
0: to To be or not to be might be the most recognized lines written by Shakespeare or even in all of literature. It's from the play Hamlet. And at this summer's Colorado Shakespeare Festival in Boulder, those famous words will be spoken by a woman. Several other traditionally male parts will be played by women as well. Since the 1700s, many women have taken on the role of Hamlet. But the approach has its critics. Hadley Peck is with the production and has been looking into this debate. And Hadley, welcome to the show.
4: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: The show's director decided to cast a woman in the role of Hamlet after watching the Olympic Games. And how did that inspire her?
4: Yeah, she had been watching the Summer Olympic Games last summer and was watching the fencing competition. Um, And watching these two female fencers just... Fight Just this uh, absolute epitome of athletic prowess that had nothing to do with gender. And of course, Hamlet has a very famous fencing match in it. She decided that would be that it kind of inspired this idea of, you know, why not a woman? Why not embody that that same kind of athletic prowess and intelligence and grace?
0: And as we said, several other male roles will be played by women. That includes Laertes yeah. and Fortinbras. And mm-hmm. these actresses portray their characters as female as opposed to cross-dressing as men. And, and why Correct. do it that
4: way? Um, we we had lots of conversations around why, why do it one way or the other. Um, in the end, there seems no good reason to have a woman play it as a man. Why not explore this different avenue of having the gender just be what the actress is. Um, on top of that, it became very important to us to maintain the the gender relationships of the play. So where previously we had father son relationships, um, and they they are paralleled across the play in Hamlet and his father. Fortinbras and his father and Laertes and Polonius, we we wanted to make sure that that parallel structure remained. And so they all became father-daughter relationships.
0: There was a commentary in Westward last month where the writer questioned whether a woman should play Hamlet. In her Mm -hmm. arguments against it, she writes that romance or a, quote, hardcore sword fight could make it uh, complicated to cast a woman in that role. What are your (laughs) thoughts on that?
4: I... uh, I think that's um, that underestimates the women that I know, in my life at least, um, that the idea of two women in love is not a new idea. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I, certainly it's not portrayed in Shakespeare as the plays would have been originally portrayed. But the relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia is forbidden for many more reasons than just their gender. And if you go back to the original text, you'll see that um, Claudius and Polonius both, and Laertes actually, all comment on how these two people cannot be together because Hamlet is royalty and Ophelia is not and Hamlet's going to have to marry for lo- for for politics not for love so they they will not be together regardless of what the play says and regardless if we cast two women in the role um as for the sword fighting the the woman who plays Laertes Ava Kostia is actually our assistant fight director for the summer she's an incredible um athletic uh, and fight choreographer and and intelligent um she's just has incredible body intelligence so the idea that a woman can't fight oh and our our hamlet Lena Klingemann, is a black belt in karate so mm. the idea that a woman can't fight is um very uh, surprising to me i guess i think that we have we absolutely have the ability we just haven't had the opportunity to do it on stage as much as men have How much dialogue did
0: you have to edit because you changed a lot of the male roles to female ones?
4: Very little. Hmm. Very, very little. We changed the pronouns, of course, um, which we also did last summer in Troilus and Cressida, um, just acknowledging that we are playing these as women. So we refer to Hamlet as Lady Hamlet instead of Lord Hamlet. It's a very small change, um, and the audience really does just accept and forget about it within the first five minutes of the show. Uh, Beyond that... There was very little that we had to completely edit out. I think we edited out a few lines that really just ring as misogynistic anyway in our contemporary world. Um, so lines like uh, r- the reference to Ophelia's painted face and mm-hmm. you know, pa- let, let her paint her face an inch thick or whatever that line is. It, we, it just, it, we don't need that line anymore anyway. So you took of- it out. Yeah, so we took it out, which we always edit the text anyway. Almost every production of Shakespeare you ever see is edited in some way, shape, or form. Um, The one line that, as we got into rehearsals, we had kept for a long time, but we finally decided it just didn't work in our world, was where Gertrude references, um, she says, Ophelia, I had hoped that you would have been my Hamlet's wife, Um, which, given that the play is set roughly Edwardian era, it just didn't feel like a true sentiment in the world of our play, hmm. that Hamlet and Ophelia, that she could have wished for that, that Gertrude would have wished they could have been wives. So, um, so we, we cut that one as well.
0: Part of your job was to research the history of female Hamlets. Mm-hmm. And what was the first documented um, professional public performance of a female Hamlet?
4: It was in 1741, actually, which is much earlier than I would have thought it would have been. Um, Her name was Fanny Furnival. She played the role at the Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin. And what was the reaction to it? Um, I I haven't seen that much, actually. I think that... um when you when you have what, – what happened with these early female Hamlets was that they were women who were already at the tops of their careers and they were really um, – they had a following. They had people who enjoyed seeing them perform. And so they wanted to offer their fans more of a performance. They wanted themselves to have more of a challenge. And so they started taking on these masculine roles, traditionally masculine roles. So um, what we see happen with her and with f- the f- subsequent Hamlets is that they are – their fans love it. They want to see more of this woman perform. Some women
0: participated in closet dramas, though. What mm-hmm. are
4: those? So closet dramas um, would have been personal circles of friends and acquaintances getting together and reading reading plays, perhaps even sort of amateur productions in a private setting. Um, it, they were very popular throughout the 16th and seven, uh, early 17th centuries. Um, it was a way for women to embody these plays that they had enjoyed seeing on the stage without kind of uh, transgressing the public bounds of performance.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Hadley Kamminga-Peck. She's with the Colorado Shakespeare Festival, and the festival's upcoming production of Hamlet features several male roles, including Hamlet, played by women. It runs through August 13th at the University Theater at the University of Colorado Boulder. In the 18th and 19th century, famous actresses of that time, such as Sarah Sidones and Charlotte Cushman, performed the role of Hamlet and to wide acclaim. What made them decide to do it?
4: You know, I think for any actor who's been performing throughout their lives, they there are some roles that you just aim for. You always want to have that role Um Uh, that role that you are uh, uh, going to attain someday. And Hamlet is one of those roles for every actor that it's, it's the pinnacle. And so, um, for them, it was they had played all the famous female roles. They had played Lady M and Margaret and Ophelia and Cordelia. And eventually you get you run out of them and you want something new. So they decided to start taking on these famous male roles of Macbeth and Hamlet and Romeo. And, and Hamlet was just one of them that they wanted to take on.
0: In Shakespeare's time, the playhouses were all male and adolescent boys played the female roles. So gender ambiguity has always been associated with Shakespeare's work. Why does the idea of a female Hamlet bother some people? I wonder if they think it's messing with a classic.
4: I I think they do think it's messing with a classic. Um, I think that you're absolutely right that Shakespeare... Shakespeare's plays in their original context played with gender quite a lot. And so for me, this is just a continued exploration of what that might have meant. I think that if Shakespeare were writing today, he absolutely would have been writing roles for women, he would not still exist under these, um, under his Elizabethan constraints. And so it's, Strange for us to continue to only produce his plays under those same constraints. I would much rather see, I get bored if I see Hamlet portrayed the same way every single time, and I certainly don't want to do the play the same way every single time. So I'd much rather see what else is out there, see what somebody else can bring to the role and see if we can't illuminate the text in a new way, given that the play has been around for 400 years. I I care what what the context was 400 years ago, but I care more how it relates to me now. And that's that to me is the more important thing than maintaining historical accuracy 100% of the time when it comes to Shakespeare.
0: Hadley, thanks so much for being with us.
4: My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Hadley Kaminga-Peck is with the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. The festival's production of Hamlet runs through August 13th at the University Theater at the University of Colorado Boulder. Hamlet was actually one of the three plays featured during the very first year of the Colorado Festival in the summer of 1958. Acting in that production were Bill Mooney and Richard Bell. They're in their 80s and live in Boulder. In an interview with Mooney and Bell, Mooney says one challenge challenge in those early years were the daily afternoon rain showers. Back then, the university's outdoor theater wasn't as elaborate as it is today, and it could get slippery.
2: You were, you were on the grass and, uh, and standing in puddles. So uh, Richard went and got sand and then laid down tons
0: of sand all over the place. In the
1: Actually, place.
0: no, it was sawdust.
4: Sawdust?
1: That's yeah, okay. from a lumber yard near uh, Longmont.
0: Bell came up with the sawdust solution during the second year of the festival. It was after one particularly soggy night when he was stage managing a show that his first wife was in.
1: She made an entrance into the dance and started to
2: slip on the wet grass. <laughs> the uh, actor, who was her partner, I can't remember who he was, ran across the stage got to her, kept her from falling, and carried her, slipping the whole time, all the way across the stage, which is what was choreographed, and they both fell just before exiting. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, uh, Bill is right. Every afternoon after that, I went to Longmont and came back with a 55-gallon drum full of sawdust from a lumber
0: mill. Bell did a lot of tech work in the early years. He recalls that they performed Hamlet with a mostly bare stage, so they relied heavily on props, many of which Bell made. They also didn't have microphones, so the actors had to really project their voices. Mooney says it sometimes made you feel like you were shouting your lines. In any case, Mooney and Bell went on to have long acting careers. They say they cherish the memories they have from those summers in Boulder. One lasting effect of the Great Recession is that people aren't selling their homes. Even though home values and equity have increased dramatically, new numbers paint a startling picture of a changed housing market. CPR's Ben Marcus reports.
5: There's no place quite like Julia Hubble's house. Her five bedrooms in Lakewood are filled with things she's picked up on her extensive travels.
4: These dancing ladies, which I picked up in Myanmar, this is a beautiful piece from Peru. Egypt, I just got back from Egypt. This is from Ecuador here, and these are Mexican angels.
5: She clearly loves this stuff and this home, but at 64 years old, she's single and living in a big house on her own. So she figured, why not sell? She poured $8,000 into sprucing the place up, and she got an offer almost immediately. She says her realtor urged her to take the deal, but she pushed back.
4: You have sold the house, which was easy. You haven't found me a house, which is hard. So you've done one part of it, which, you know, people walked in the door, you had a sale, boom, that's easy. The hard part, you haven't done yet.
5: She wanted to downsize, but could never find a place that was quite right. There was so little to choose from. She eventually took the house off the market. That was three years ago. Denver happens to be at what you might call a critical lack of inventory. That's Charles Roberts, a longtime Denver real estate broker. He says they've struggled with a shortage of listings for the last four years, but things have gotten worse. We're at record low inventory per capita in Metro Denver. It's kind of a catch-22. People aren't putting their home on the market because they're afraid they won't be able to find another place to buy. But there isn't another place to buy because people aren't selling. But there is so much fear of being caught in this lack of inventory situation that a lot of people aren't moving. Robert says there are ways around this. If you're a seller in a high demand place, you can negotiate to stay in your home longer while you find something else. Sellers have all the leverage. This problem is a national phenomenon, and it's changed the housing market. Darren Bloomquist is with Adam Data Solutions. He analyzed how long people are staying in their homes across the country. This
2: is something we recently started looking at and really jumped off the the Excel
5: spreadsheet at us. He found that people are staying in their homes twice as long as before the recession, from four years on average to now about eight years on average.
2: There was a paradigm shift in the way that homeowners had to, I think were forced to view homeownership after the, the Great Recession.
5: Because so much equity was lost, it made sense that people weren't selling. But cities like Denver recently have seen tremendous price growth, and it's surprising that more people aren't selling to take advantage of that. John Covert is an economist with Metro Study in Denver. He says people are actually taking advantage of their equity. Credit lines are up, and home remodeling is at an all-time high in Denver and the U.S. They're remodeling their kitchens. They're they're finishing their basements, right? So they're staying in their homes. So they have more of a compelling reason to stay in their house today. Covert does a census of all new home development in Denver, and new home construction is still just 60% what it was at the building peak. Yeah, so the market's kind of sort of walking through mud right now. That's despite a booming population. Builders can't add inventory because labor is in short supply, and banks are still hesitant to loan to them because of stricter standards following the housing crisis. Still, the demand for homes is extraordinary, but no one's going to get Julia Hubble's house. Well, for now. She still hopes to sell someday, but since there are so few homes on the market, she may look in places other than Denver.
4: Iceland's one of my favorite places. The only problem is it's very expensive. Nicaragua's a good option. Mexico's a good option.
5: But for now, she's content to be stuck in her home as her equity continues to grow. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News.
0: That's our show for today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.